Good morning, Calvary Satterton. It's good to see all of you on this beautiful morning. And good morning, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to believe that you're all there and you're listening and paying attention. I've heard reports from the first service, so I know you actually are there. And I want to say good morning to you all as well. We're about ready to land our series that we're calling Continuing What Jesus Started. We're not going to land it today. We're actually going to land it next week. But we're going to look at some of the themes that show up at the end of this letter from Paul to Timothy. And I've titled this message, Good News. But not good news the way I just said it. Not good news like that. I've titled this message, Good News. You see, you can't get that in writing, right? Um, That's why sometimes, or maybe often, you've heard people say, if there is an opportunity to be misunderstood, don't send an email. If the relationship is not solid, don't send a text. If there's an opportunity for misunderstanding, don't tweet the other person. Call them. Better yet, show up face-to-face, get together. Because in writing, you can't communicate emphasis, inflection, intonation. All of that's different. I'm not calling the message good news. I'm calling the message good news Let me tell you where that comes from. A couple of years ago, I was in a meeting, and the moderator of the meeting passed out some uh, um, information to the attenders at the meeting. And after everybody had a minute to kind of look at it, the moderator said, well, now let's get to the good news. And immediately, one of the participants said, good news? Now, did the person mean, oh, yeah, I believe you, and I believe this is good news? No, no, no. The participant meant, how in the world can you call this good news? You said it's good news, but I'm looking at it, and it's not good news. The good news means it's not really good news. that makes sense? Here's why I'm calling this message good news. Paul talks a lot about good news in this letter. He starts by talking about good news. He talks about it in the middle, and now at the end there's good news. But the stuff that we're going to look at today from chapter 4, we're going to be tempted to say good news. Paul tells us he's about ready to die. Paul tells us most of those that were close to him have deserted him. Paul tells us he's freezing in a damp, dark, cold prison cell. Good news, that's what we're tempted to say. So let's withhold judgment on our good news, or good news. Let's work through a few themes, and then we'll see where the good news shows up at the end. Carlos worked with the first few verses from chapter 4 last week, and so I'm not going to repeat anything he said. I'm going to refer to a couple of the verses a little later on with a slightly different emphasis, but I want to start in the middle of the chapter by looking at Paul's final words. Now, how do we know they're Paul's final words? Look at what he writes. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul tells us he knows his time is very short. I was a teacher for more than 30 years, which means that I literally gave thousands of tests. And the students hated me for giving the tests. Did I care? Heck no. I gave tests anyway, right? 
But the one thing I did notice, and in fact it became humorous my last few years of teaching, whenever I would announce that there's only five minutes left in the exam, there were lots of different expressions in, on the part of the students. I would say, five minutes left, some students would put their feet out, cross their arms behind their head, lean back as if to say, nailed another one, nailed another one. Those students were hated by all the other students in the class, typically. Uh, those students studied, they prepared, they knew the information, they were done, they were just waiting for dismissal. They could have left, but they wanted to stay, just to tick off all the other students, right? Then there were other students taking the test, and I'd say, five minutes left, oh, they would wipe their brow, sweat was dripping on the paper, they began to frantically write, their arms are hurting, they were cramming every word in, right? Then were other students who uh, threw their pen on the desk, onto the floor, uh, they gave up, right? They're waving the flag of surrender. I can have four more days to work on this exam. I know I'm taking this course over again. I flunked this baby. Then there were other students who would try to get my attention, and they would make hand and arm signs at me. And I never particularly liked those students. Lots of different expressions when the five-minute warning was given. Paul's been giving the five-minute warning. He knows his life is just about over. That's what he says, right? I'm being poured out. My life is just about over. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I know what time I have left is minimal. And what he wants to do is to communicate to Timothy the urgency of living like that. Let me say it this way. Paul lived as if there was a clock running in the back of his mind. Isn't that right? You can read his other letters and see that, right? He's living as if he's... The time's ticking off in the background. Now, he's not living in some anxious, depressed, weirded-out, OCD way, but he knows there's a clock running in the background. Therefore, he wants his life, he wants each day to count, and he wants to live perfect, purposefully. He wants to live with intention. He wants to live continuing what Jesus started rather than wind up squandering lots of time and energy. So he does it carefully. Let me compare and contrast for you two different philosophies for life. The first one I want to mention is from um, Kenny Chesney. Some of you may be Kenny Chesney fans. He's a country music singer. And he wrote a song a couple years ago called um, Beer in Mexico. And uh, here's how the chorus goes. I'm going to sit right here and have another beer in Mexico and do my best to waste another day. Is that your philosophy? I'm going to sit right here and just do my best. I'm going to try really, really hard to waste another day. Well, that may not be your philosophy, but you're doing a good job at that, right? I mean, you're just on the trade. You're wasting another day. Compare that with Moses' philosophy, who wrote in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Are you closer to Kenny or Moses? Doing your best to waste another day or numbering your days so you'll live with a heart of wisdom? In fact, uh, just suppose there was a big continuum up here, right? And on this side of the continuum is Kenny Chesney, doing my best to waste another day. And all the way on the other end of the continuum is Moses. I'm going to number my days. I'm living with a clock in the background so I can live with a heart of wisdom. If that's a continuum, every one of us live our lives somewhere on that continuum. Which end are you closer to? Don't raise your hand. Just ask yourself. Which end of the continuum or where on that continuum are you living most of your days? 
If you never give thought to what I'm talking about, if you've never considered what Paul's saying to Timothy, you can't be living on the Moses end, right? My guess is you're living more on the Chesney end. Where are you living on that continuum? Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, here's what I want you to know. I'm not going to be here to remind you, and so I'm writing it down one more time. Remember what Moses said. Teach us to number our days so that we can live with a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so we're not wasting our time and energy, but we're living out that energy, continuing what Jesus started. Where are you on the continuum, and where do you want to be? Paul's final words, he's encouraging Timothy to live with a clock running in the background. The next reminder I want to give you is about preparation. Preparation. And I want to tell you right up front. Planning and preparation are not the same thing. Planning involves prediction to some degree. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying planning's bad. The Bible tells us we need to plan, right? Consider building the tower. I know all that. The Bible says that. But planning and preparation are two different things. And I do know this. Behind planning stands a fair bit of prediction. Because if you're going to plan, you have to predict what the circumstances and situation is going to be. Now, you may be pretty good at prediction, or you may have such a history and lots of intuition that you're good at prediction, but planning requires some prediction. Because you're planning based on what may happen, well, you're predicting what may happen. So let's try it. How many of you are really, really good at predicting the future? Like, you never mess up. Raise your hand. Yeah, that's what I thought. We're lousy at that, right? We're worse than the weather people, right? We're not good at prediction. That, 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 that's why a good friend of mine, who actually runs a, a pretty sizable business, says, plans are useless. But planning is priceless. Here's what he means. The plans that you actually develop are never going to be put into practice and never work exactly the way you planned it because we're terrible at prediction. They're going to be full. You didn't predict the future, right? Therefore, the plans are kind of out of whack. Preparation is different than planning. Planning is based on a little bit of prediction, and then you work the circumstances based on what you're predicting. Preparation is about being ready for whatever may come. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Be prepared. He doesn't say, Timothy, now look, I'm checking out. And so develop your plans in great detail and work on executing your plan. No, no, no. He says, Timothy, be prepared. All right, now I'm going to step out, step out of my zone of expertise, which is really infinitesimal, by the way. But let me step out of that. And I'm going to illustrate the difference between planning and preparation by talking about surfing. I didn't realize that was so funny, but okay, surfing. I've never been surfing. I don't want to go surfing. I don't care about surfing, but it kind of fits as an illustration, all right? If you're a surfer, you can plan to go surfing tomorrow. You can say, okay, I've got to be at work by, by 8. Not that surfers have real jobs, but just pretend, right? <laughs> you can plan that you're, before tomorrow you go to work, you're going to go surfing. So I've got to be at work at 8, so I'm going to get up at 5. Not that surfers get up that early, but they're going to get up at 5, make their way to the beach by 5.30. They're going to surf from 5.30 to like 7. Then they'll get showered up, whatever. Not that surfers shower. And eventually they'll get to work, all right? That's planning. So surfers can plan to go surfing. 
But once they grab their board and enter the ocean, planning is over and preparing begins. Because they can't predict when the wave's going to come. And they can't predict what the kind of wave the next wave is going to be. They can plan to go surfing, but they can't plan the next wave to ride. They have to be prepared for whatever wave comes. They have to be prepared to let this one go, to catch that one, catch this one from this side or that side. Okay, all that I know has now been exhausted. You get the idea now? You can plan to go surfing. Once you're in the ocean, you no longer are planning. Now you're preparing. Paul says to Timothy, I need you to be prepared. Since we're not really good at prediction, be prepared for whatever God may do. Be prepared for whatever may come. Let me try it this way. Why did the New England England Patriots always win? Because they cheat. (laughs) But beside that, they also prepare, right? It's cheating and preparing. It's kind of like like, like a twofold purpose, right? Uh, But forget the cheating part for now. They prepare. How many plays do you think the Patriots design and practice that they never run in the game. Dozens of them. They're prepared just in case the situation comes. They prepare in the gym, in the weight room. They prepare watching film. They prepare in practice. They don't know once once the games start what formation's going to be. They don't know what the defense is going to give them. But all of the preparation comes into play. And regardless of what happens, they're ready for whatever makes sense. That works? Okay, so now let me ask you. How good are you at preparing? Notice the word prepare has the word pre at the beginning. That means before. Before the event, before the speech, before the meeting, before the marriage, before the family, before the job, before the, you see? Pre, it's before. How good are you at getting ready before? Or do you just do what comes naturally, spontaneously wing your way through life? Here's the problem. If we do what what comes naturally, we'll be wrong most of the time. Isn't that right? Prepare means before you go public, you prepare. You get it together, and you recognize that you're not good at prediction, so you're prepared that if things go in a couple different directions, you're able to surf that wave as you go. Have you ever been in a meeting where the leader of the meeting was not prepared? Sure, we've all been through that agony, right? Have you ever walked into your home in the evening after work and you really weren't weren't prepared to face the kids? You ever um, come in late one evening and you weren't quite prepared to have that chat with your parents? Um, You ever prepared for that or not prepared for the interview and it becomes pretty obvious after two seconds that you're not prepared? We know what it's like to not be ready for what's coming. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to prepare. Before you go public, give thought. Before you go public, think of different ways it may go and get ready. Planning's okay, but be prepared because we're not great at prediction. You need to be ready to ride that wave in different ways. Well, the next thing I want to talk about that kind of leads into that is priority. Let me show you how they're linked. When I talk about preparing, getting ready beforehand, I know what a number of you are thinking. Charles, you don't understand. I'm so busy, I don't have time. You're thinking that? So here's what I would respond by saying. You're a liar. 
In a nice way. You're, you're a liar. Let me, let me do the math. I'm going to make the math easy for you, right? Suppose you work 44 hours a week. Oh, Charles, I work much more than that. I'm making the math easy, all right? You work 44 hours. Maybe you work more. Fine. Cut something out somewhere else. 44 hours a week. Suppose you sleep eight hours. Charles, I never sleep that much. I'm making the math easy, all right? You work 44 hours, you sleep 56 hours, that's 100 hours. See how the math is easy? You work 44, you, maybe you work 56 and you sleep 44. I don't know, but whatever you wind up with, 100 hours. So you work and you sleep, that's 100 hours. You don't have any time, you have 68 hours left. What are you doing all the time? You have more disposable time in the work-sleep ratio that I just gave than you have devoted to either one of them. What do you mean you don't have time? It's not a question of no preparation time. It's a question of bad priorities. Now, here's how Paul talks about priority. He does it in an interesting way, I think. Here's what he says. Keep your head. How many of you have ever seen someone lose their head? Raise your hand. Like, I'm not talking about Isis or Kathy Griffin, all right? I'm talking about figuratively, figurative. Have you ever seen anybody lose their head as a figure of speech, right? Have you ever seen a parent or two lose his or her head on the sidelines of their children's soccer game? You ever seen that? Yeah. Have you, have you ever seen someone lose their head as a driver trying to exit or enter the Calvary parking lot? Yeah, you've seen that, right? In fact, I'm trying to get Brian and the facilities guys to install cameras throughout the parking lot so periodically we can show you your faces and gestures as you're coming in and going. It's not a very pretty sight. You ever seen anybody lose their head on a golf course? There is a brand new $350 Scotty Cameron putter at the bottom of the pond right near hole three <laughs> because somebody lost his head because he missed a short putt. It is not my putter. But I've gotten awful slimy trying to dive to the bottom of that pond numerous times to get that $350 putter. And the guy that threw his putter into that pond drove back to the clubhouse and bought another $350 putter to play hole four. That's what happens when you lose your head. You ever see anybody lose their head? Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't lose your head. You see, there are going to be times as we go through life when we're going to be tempted to lose our head, lose our composure, live out of step and out of sync. Do you know what that's like? So Paul, isn't it interesting? Paul says to Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, he says, Timothy, live with a sense of preparation. Live with the clock running in the background. And Timothy, don't lose your head. People are going to push on you. In fact, if you live a salt life, you're going to be hurt. Don't lose your head, Timothy. People aren't going to believe what you say. They're going to make false accusations. Don't lose your head, Timothy. Keep your head in the game. Have you ever seen athletes before the event wearing headphones that cost like a million dollars now, these big Bose headphones, they get off the bus, right? And if, particularly if they're at the visitor stadium, they all have the headphones on because they don't want to hear the boos and the jeers of the Philly fans, right? And they go into the field and they're going through the motions and they got the headphones on. They're on the practice um, tee, practicing, right? They got the headphones on. They're making sure the wrong messages don't get through. They're making sure they're thinking the right way. They're reminding themselves in a way that makes sense to them. I need to play soon and I don't want to lose my head and how this thing is going. I need to live with a sense of priority. Now let me give you a, a couple of helpful hints in keeping your composure. Some principles to keep your composure. And some of you really need this, all right? Here's the first one. 
Know your triggers. Know your, every one of you has a trigger or two. Some of you are sitting next to your trigger, right? And you know what happens? You pull the trigger of a gun. Yeah, something real loud is going to happen, right? Well, you know your trigger because here's how a trigger works. When X happens, B happens, right? You know, that, that's your trigger. Now, uh, let me tell you uh, one of the triggers that kind of functions in my marriage. If you were to grab Kim's purse, and don't, don't do this, by the way. You'll get arrested or kicked or something. But if you were to look in Kim's purse, you would discover inside her purse is a plastic bag. And inside the plastic bag, you'll find a handful of halls, lemon honey, and you'll also find some gum in the plastic bag. Those halls and that um, and, those, and those pieces of gum are not for Kim. They're for me. Because I have allergies, and pretty regularly, I make wheezing, sucking sounds. And those wheezing, sucking sounds are triggers for Kim, right? And so Kim has learned, I need to know my triggers. So when he starts wheezing and making sucking sounds, here's what happens. If we're in the car together, this, this happens recently. This happens regularly, right? I'm making the, I don't even know I'm doing it, right? It's just kind of unconscious sucking, wheezing sounds. Uh, Kim will reach down to open her purse, open the little baggie, unwrap the halls, just hand it to me. I take the halls, put it in my mouth, and, and it's resolved, right? That, that's kind of knowing your triggers, right? Now, you have triggers too, right? Um, they may not be as easily solved as halls and gum, but you need to figure out what the triggers are. Here's another problem. In order to reduce your... Um, your factor of exploding and losing your head, you need to not only know your triggers, you need to close the gap. The gap between your expectations and reality. Do you ever notice that we have lots of expectations in all areas of life, right? Those expectations usually are very different than the reality of our life in most situations. Isn't that right? So let me paint the picture. Suppose you had a meeting right at the end of the day, and uh, you have to get your kids to an important soccer game by 6.30. You call ahead, say, look, I'm going to be home. Make sure you're dressed, ready to go. It'd be really good if you're absolutely on the porch, in the driveway, ready to go. We don't have much time. Now, you are expecting, right? Your expectation is you will pull into the driveway, and your brood of little soccer players will come running to you. In their uniform, shorts on, shin pads in place, mouthpiece in. They are ready to go, right? How often is that expectation ever realized? Like never, right? You pull into the driveway, the kids cannot be found, right? And if they can be found, the shin pads are gone forever, right? They can't find the shorts. Where's the shirt? It's over here. It, now, your expectation is crashing with your reality. Here's the point. Which do you question? Your reality. What's the matter with you guys, right? They're pulling your trigger, right? I told you I was going to be home. We're going to be late for the game. I'm going to get there. The other people are going to think I'm a lousy parent. What are you guys doing? You see, your trigger has now been pulled, and it's a nightmare there, right? Well, what's the moral of that story? Know the gap, and your kids shouldn't be playing soccer anyway. That, that's the real point. <laughs> so here's another one concerning principles of uh, composure. Know your triggers. Close the gap, and you close the gap by questioning your expectations, not your reality. And thirdly, tell yourself the truth. If you want to know the truth, here's the truth. You've got a loving Heavenly Father who just happens to be the King of the universe. 
He's not surprised by what's happening. God's not sitting on the throne today wiping his brow saying, oh my goodness, how did we get in this mess and how are we going to get That's not what's happening. He's not sweating it out. God's in control and things are happening exactly as he's planning. You've got a heavenly father who's in charge. And you've got a heavenly father who loves you and cares for you more than you love and care for yourself. If you take those two things, right, God's sovereignty and God's grace, and you marry them together, that's exactly what the little kid's prayer does, right? God is great and God is good. We marry him. Our problem is we often live as if they're separated. God, you may be all-powerful. You really ticked off at me because I didn't do this. Or God, you're loving, but you really can't do anything about the situation. You separate those things to your own peril. And before you know it, you're living frantically or discouraged. We're living crazy lives because we've separated them or we're living indifferent or not being cognizant to either one of those things. So we need to keep them together. God is in control and God loves us more than we can imagine. Therefore, we can respond with poise. We can respond knowing what's going on, knowing that God has this handled and that God has our back and that God loves us. That's how we respond. And that's how we live with composure. That's kind of what Paul's saying to Timothy. Well, I've got one last thing I want to say. Paul brings his letter in for a landing. And he mentions a couple of strange things, it seems, right? So here's Paul, right? Apostle Paul. He wrote more of the New Testament than anybody, right? I mean, Paul, he's, he, he is like really, really significant in the Bible. And we would expect the last things that he says are going to just be dripping with importance. What, what's the one key thing he says to Timothy? He says, Timothy... You need to get here quick and bring me some warm clothes. Say, what? what, You read it, right? And Timothy, bring my coat. Why in the world would the apostle Paul ask for warm clothes? Because he was cold, right? He asked for warm clothes. He's cold. He's in a damp, dark, cold prison cell, kind of like a dungeon. Winter's coming. He tells him, the guy's cold, right? And so he says, Timothy, you need to get here quick. I'm freezing. Bring me some warm clothes. I like that. Paul's pragmatic, right? And we need to be pragmatic too. Put your seatbelt on when you're driving in the car, right? Listen to WIP. It's good for you. Just try to root for the Phillies. Go ahead. Keep your heart in that mess for a season, right? right? Paul is practical. He says, I'm really, really cold. Timothy, here's one last request. Like, Bring me some warm clothes, would you? Well, we don't know if Timothy got there in time, but that's what Paul asked for. Here's another thing he says. Timothy, not only warm clothes, would you bring my books? What? Not a, what, what books do you think Paul asked for? Romance novels, right? Uh, probably not. And some of you aren't really book people. You say, um, Timothy, bring me some magazines. Right? I want to read the short article version rather than the long book. Um, well, we're not exactly sure what the books and the parchments are. Uh, most people would say probably whatever portion of the Scripture he would have available and, you know, we're not sure if Paul had a whole Bible at that point. He certainly didn't have the New Testament. He's writing some of that. My guess is he probably didn't have a whole copy of the Old Testament either. Remember, that was really, really expensive. There were no printing presses. So if you wanted a copy of the Bible or a book of the Bible, somebody had to write it for you. Like, take a version that they've got, and they copied it for you. I mean, it's really expensive. So Paul says, Timothy, bring me my parchments. Bring me the books probably portions of Scripture. Maybe he had a gospel or two. He wanted to reflect back on Jesus' life. And the books, 
Maybe they were like his notebooks, part of it. We don't know. You know, after all, he wrote lots of letters. Maybe he drafted, started a few others, wanted to kind of finish them, got arrested quickly. We don't know. But he wants his books. But they're not the two most important things he asked for. He doesn't say, Timothy, uh, bring me some warm clothes and bring my books. Yours truly, Paul. That's not what he says. This is how he ends the letter, by saying, Timothy, I need community. I need community. Look at all the names that are mentioned at the end of chapter 4. I want to read through them, uh, just to show you I, I can pronounce most of them. Demas, Crescens, Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus, Alexander, Priscilla, Aquila, Onesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Lucy, Charlie, Claudia, <laughs> and all the brothers. Um, we don't know anything about some of those names. You'll get to meet some of them someday, but we don't know. Now, we do know some things about some of them, though, right? Titus, for example, um, he was called in and sent out. In fact, the book, the letter right after 2 Timothy is addressed to Titus. Titus was sent by Paul um, as a missionary. He was sent out, and he sent, called back, then he's sent out again. So Titus is kind of doing the called in, sent out kind of thing. You also know Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke is still with Paul, by the way. That's pretty cool, right? Um, if you're in a damp, dark dungeon, it's pretty good to have a doctor with you. So Dr. Luke's there. And maybe he's taking care of them. Um, let me call your attention to a couple names that um, are particularly uh, interesting. Look at Mark. I don't know about you. I'm so glad Mark's name's there. You see, Mark and Paul had some issues a little before. This is at the end of Paul's life, but at the beginning of Paul's missionary life, he took Mark and went on the first missionary journey and Mark deserted and went home. Did he get homesick? Was he afraid? He didn't like that? We don't know. But Mark deserted and went home. Barnabas was a relation to Mark. And when it came time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along. Paul said, no way. Mark's not coming. And here's a sad note in the book of Acts. Barnabas and Paul separate over Mark, and those two, to the best of our knowledge, are never reunited. You never see Paul and Barnabas together again. But Paul and Mark are together again. Isn't that cool? And so at the end, Paul says to the end of his life, oh, Timothy, when you're coming, bring me some warm clothes, bring me my books, and bring Mark. I want Mark because he's useful to me. Isn't that good? Now, there's another name up there, the first one on the list, Demas. Now, Demas, in some ways, is a little different than Mark. Demas is one of the deserters. Early on, he's a partner with Paul, kind of traveling with Paul. He's helping. But in this letter, the last letter we read, Demas deserts Paul because he loved the world. You know, Demas often gets ripped for doing that. I sure hope the end of Demas' story is like Mark's story don't you? I mean, Mark took off and he came back. Maybe Demas took off and maybe he came back too. After all, 
Isn't that your story? You took off. Jesus got your attention. You came back. Some of you have taken off and come back a few times. Well, maybe, uh, maybe that's Demas' story. You get Aquila and Priscilla. That's a husband and wife team doing ministry together, opening their home, ministering to people, showing human hospitality to demonstrate God's hospitality in the gospel. Some people believe that uh, Linus actually becomes the bishop of Ephesus. There is a Linus that becomes, maybe he's the one. And Paul mentions them here. We don't know too much about those guys. But here's the point. At the end of Paul's letter, Paul says, you know what? Some warm clothes would be really nice. My books would be really helpful. But more important than those things, community is essential. We often think of Paul as kind of a lone ranger, right? You read his letters and you think, oh, he's out there all alone. Paul's like never alone. He's always with these people, addressing these people. Say hi to these guys. These guys here greet you. Send your greetings back to them. Paul's always a team member. He may be the, you know, his is the name that often gets listed at the head of the list, but there's a whole support team to what he's doing. And every letter, to one degree or another, the curtain gets pulled back and you see some of the support team. Paul was not a lone ranger. Paul was a team guy. But the community that he had with human beings is nothing compared to the community that he desired and that he had with Jesus. Let me show you. Look at verse 17. It's not up on the screen, but look at verse 17. Paul's writing about how everybody deserted him. Turn it back on him. Then he says this in 17. But the Lord stood by my side. Yeah, human community is absolutely essential. Community with God is of utmost importance. Jesus stood by me. Look at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me. The Lord's going to rescue me. And how does he end the letter? Look at verse 22. Hey, Timothy, the Lord be with you. I said at the beginning of this series that Paul never got over his first encounter with Jesus. Paul meets Timothy on the way to Damascus. And Paul is overcome with how Jesus so identifies with his people that if Paul's persecuting Christians, he's actually persecuting Jesus because Jesus and his people are like so tight. Well, now Paul recognizes, well, now I'm one of Christ's people. Therefore, he's one with me. People may desert me. Jesus never will. People may turn their back. Jesus never will. Human beings are going to run out of resources. Jesus never will. And so, Timothy, I give you to end this letter and our conversations all that you need. The Lord will be with you. Now, look, friends, I don't know what you're experiencing and what you're going through. Some of you are going through some deep stuff that I don't know nothing about, and I'd probably fall apart if I was going through it. Here's what you need. You need to say this to yourself regularly. I will be with you. That's what Jesus said. Say it slowly. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We are now one. I took your debt. I gave you my resources. We are one. I will never leave you.
I will never forsake you. So Paul ends by saying, clock's running, Timothy. Make sure it's running in the background of your life. Live a life of preparation because you don't know what tomorrow holds. Be prepared for whatever God brings. Live a life of priority. Don't lose your head. Live a life of community. Be in touch with people. Allow them to speak into your life and you speak into those. But even more than all of those things, make sure you're in Jesus and he's in you. And when you're hitting a rough stretch, remind yourself, I will never leave you, now or forever. And if we would just live that, we could face anything. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this letter that comes as Paul's final word to Timothy and the final word that we know that he wrote. We don't know how Timothy responded, but we get to live how we respond. So, Lord, I pray that you would get our attention today. And for some of us, we need to start that clock running in the back line, background because we've been following Chesney's advice a whole lot more than Paul's. We need to live lives of preparation rather than just winging it. We need to live with a sense of priority because we lose our head. We need to live in community because we often don't see ourselves for what we and who we really are. But most important, we need to live in union with Jesus, the one who died for us, rose for us, now energizes us to continue what he started. Help us to take these last words of Paul to heart and to live them out as Jesus' words to us. We pray in his name. Amen.